Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you open your Bible to Psalm 130. And I'm used to having a wireless mic, but since we're outside, I'm going to try to navigate with one hand here. And again, if your children are in preschool and on down, uh, you can leave now to go to Kids Worship, which is across the park. And you can go with Cheryl. I'm going to move up here just so I don't have a glare. Is that better? Now I can see you, everybody. (laughs) And I can see my screen here. All right. The things you think about when you do an outside worship service. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. It's kind of an obscure movie that came out about 10 years ago. It's the movie called Bella. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but it's an interesting story. It stars two young people in their 20s, Jose and Nina. Jose was a soccer player. He was a professional soccer player, and they just won this championship game, and he's driving with his friend, celebrating, and they turn a corner, and he doesn't see this little girl run out, and he hits and kills this girl. And he's overcome with grief. He's overcome with guilt, and he tries to go reconcile with the mother. He tries to apologize to the mother. He tries to ask forgiveness, but the mother will not forgive him. And so he is just so overcome with guilt. He's a shell of a man. And then he meets Nina. Nina works at this restaurant. She's a part-time worker. She got pregnant by her boyfriend, not Jose. And she's struggling with whether she should keep the baby or not. And so she's thinking about having an abortion. And Jose is so guilt-ridden over the fact that he killed a baby. He made it his life mission to talk Nina out of having an abortion. And so it's a great story of how Jose and Nina come together. And actually what ends up happening is Nina has the baby and Jose ends up marrying her and adopting the baby. And it's a great tale of redemption. But what it shows us is what it means to be plagued by guilt, by guilt. You know, there may be a lot of you here this morning that are struggling with guilty feelings. Maybe that you are just even crippled by guilt. And guilt is something that we all deal with from time to time. Maybe it's a habitual sin that we've had to deal with that brings guilt. Maybe you're even struggling with feelings of guilt because you don't spend enough time with your family or you don't spend enough time at work. All of us from time to time have these crippling, overwhelming feelings of guilt. And it sometimes can be very devastating. Not only can we have feelings of guilt, but the Bible says if you're not a Christian, you're guilty before God's bar of justice and you deserve His justice. But there's hope this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 130, which I think gives us what I call gospel assurance in the midst of extreme guilt. Now, many of you may be familiar with John Wesley. 
John Wesley is the famous British evangelist, pastor. The Methodist church was started under his leadership. And if you know anything about uh, John Wesley, he grew up in a very religious home. He was very religious. His dad pressured him to go into the ministry. And so as a young man, he would do a lot of things that were very religious. He would go help the poor. He would go into the jails. He actually went on a mission trip from England to Georgia. This was back in the 1700s. He went to quote-unquote convert the native. But here's the issue with John Wesley. All that time, he wasn't saved. He did not have a relationship with God. And on the way back, on the boat back from America to England, he struggled with feelings of guilt. Why am I out here doing ministry when I know deep in my heart I'm not a Christian? And so he goes back to England, and he begins university. And on Wednesday, May 24th, 1738, he begrudgingly went to a Bible study. And this Bible study was on the book of Romans. And the guy that was leading the Bible study just read Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And through that, John Wesley got saved. And a lot of people understand the story of John Wesley's salvation through the book of Romans, but you may not know the rest of the story. That afternoon, he went to what was called a Vesper service. It's a singing service. And it was at that singing service that Psalm 130 was read and sung as the anthem. And that's really what convicted him of sin. And he became a Christian with the combination of the book of Romans and Psalm 130 that we have before us this morning. Martin Luther has called Psalm 130 a Pauline psalm. Why is it a Pauline psalm? Because a lot of the themes that we have in Paul's writings... The gospel, salvation, forgiveness, all of these themes that we see in the New Testament show up in these eight verses in Psalm 130. So I want us to read this together, and here's the main point of the psalm. Here's the main point that the psalmist is trying to drive home in Psalm 130. Whenever you experience deep feelings of guilt, hope in God's abundant forgiveness. Whenever you experience deep feelings of guilt, which all of us will from time to time, deep feelings of guilt, hope in God's abundant forgiveness. Let's read this together. There is some debate about who the author is. If you look in your Bible, there is no author. It just says a song of ascents. The reformers like Martin Luther and Calvin and even Matthew Henry believed it was David, but we really don't know. All we know is that this psalmist is in the pit of despair and he's crying out to God. So let's read this psalm together. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... With you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
Oftentimes, psalms are in what we call couplets, two lines that work together. And so there's eight verses in this psalm, and so it's divided into four sections, each of these two verses going side by side. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see the first thing that, that the psalmist is giving us, and it is a cry of desperation. A cry of desperation. Notice what he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. Now when you think of depths, you probably think of a river, you think of an ocean, you think of the chaos of being overwhelmed in a flood. And that's metaphorically what he's speaking about here. He's speaking about being swamped in affliction. Now there's two types of ways. Can I move this? I'm going to move this so I don't trip over. There we go. There are two types of depths I think that all of us can experience from time to time. One type of depth that I think that we experience are what I call external afflictions. Just the things of life that may be going wrong right now. You're having problems at work. You're having problems with your family. Maybe you're having financial problems. You just have these, these external issues coming down upon you and you feel like you're swamped. That's the depths that you're going through. But I think that what the psalmist here is talking about is something a little bit deeper. He's talking about being in the depths of guilt in the depths of shame over his sin. And I want to show that to you, how he is crying out because of his guilt. He's feeling this alienation from God. He's feeling guilty. And I wonder, have you ever been overwhelmed, like really overwhelmed, in the depths with feelings of guilt, with feelings of shame? And it could be for whatever reason. It could be from a sin that you just keep committing over and over again, and you're like, I'm never going to get over this sin. It could be condemnation from the devil coming at you. It could be just that you have a, you have a guilty conscience, and you really don't know why. It may be unwarranted, but you are feeling guilty. For whatever reason, you're drowning in feelings of guilt and despair. That's what the psalmist is right here. He is drowning. He's in the depths of guilt and shame over a sin. Oftentimes, the psalmist will talk about this whole idea of being in the deep waters of sin. Psalm 69, 1, 1 through 2, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Have you ever felt that flood before? Paul tells us there's a battle going on inside our hearts. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's this internal battle in your heart where sometimes you're going to struggle with feelings of guilt. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. God is not mad at you for coming to him with that guilt. Notice that the psalmist does not hide from God. Notice that the psalmist does not run from God. The psalmist goes directly to God, and what does he say? Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Verse 2, let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for, for mercy. He prays intensely to the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm in the depths. I need you. I need you to hear me. So if you are guilty this morning, if you are in the depths this morning, you have permission to go directly to God with your problems, and He receives you. He's not mad. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. You have that promise. 
If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And that's the, what the psalmist is doing here. In this first section here, a cry of desperation. I'm in the depths. I'm in the floods. I'm overwhelmed. Lord, hear me. Lord, help me. I'm crying out to you. And I wonder, how many of you ever experienced that? Let's keep moving on and see the second section. Verses 3 and 4. A confession of sin. A confession of sin. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, what's he saying? I'll give you a paraphrase. God, if you kept a record of my sin, I'm toast. It's basically what he's saying. The word mark there, if you should mark iniquities, it's a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It's this idea that God is a judge, and God takes out his pen, and God meticulously writes down and pays very close attention to every single sin you've ever committed. God marks it down. He's inflexible. Nothing misses his eye. He's going to mark it. He's going to write it down. He's going to keep a meticulous record. He's going to scrutinize everything in your life. He's going to mark it down. And what does the psalmist say? If God were to do that, if God were to mark down, if God were to meticulously write down, if God were to remember forever every single sin you've ever committed in your life, what's his question? It's a rhetorical question there in verse 3. Oh, Lord, who could stand? And what's the answer to that? Can anybody stand? Would anybody be able to come out of the courtroom not guilty if God wrote down meticulously every single sin you've ever committed? And the psalmist is very aware of that. He says, listen, if God were to keep a record of every sin I've ever committed, I could not stand. I would be toast. I would be dead. I would be guilty. I would be naked before God. And that's what Hebrews 4.13 says. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The psalmist knows he has to give an account to God. And like Mickey, who may sometimes make mistakes as an accountant, you make mistakes, don't you, Mickey, sometimes? Those of you that are his clients, like, I hope not. God, as an accountant, never makes a mistake in accounting for your sin. Who can stand? And see, I wonder, in our American culture today, how flippant we are about sin. We kind of just sometimes think that God's going to just brush our sin under the carpet. We don't ever stop and think about our sin. We don't ever, we don't ever own up to our sin. We don't really think about how offensive our sin is. And it could be that for some of you this morning, you're not guilty of your sin because you're comfortably numb in your sin and it's not bothered you anymore. That's a dangerous place to get to. But I want you to notice verse 4. This is the gospel. Pay attention to the little words in the Bible. What does verse 4 start with in your Bible? Let me hear it. But. But. Notice what the psalmist says. He's been crying out to God. God, I'm in the depths of sin. God, I'm guilty. God, if you kept a record of sin, I would be lost. I couldn't stand. I'm toast. There's no way that I can, that I can measure up. There's not one thing I can do, but with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there's forgiveness. I can't clean myself up. I know my sin. 
I know my guilt. The one thing I can do is appeal to you, but God, with you, there's forgiveness. I'm reminded of when Moses wanted to see God face to face. And God says, you can't see me face to face, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And and God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by so Moses can see his backside glory. And in that passing by, God gives Moses his name. And this is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 1 John 2, 1-2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Here's a problem that some of you may be struggling with this morning. I can't look into your heart, but you may just may wonder deep in your heart, Can God truly forgive me? Do you believe that God can forgive the worst of your sins? Maybe you're struggling this morning. Maybe you're fluctuating in faith, thinking, I have sinned so grievously that God can never forgive me. Sean, if you knew the things that I've done, the thoughts that I've had, God could never forgive me. Let me give you some gospel assurance this morning. Here's what gospel assurance is. Gospel assurance says this. Yes, it is true that we are outrageous sinners and we deserve God's wrath. That is absolutely true. But at the same time, we can rest in the confidence that God is an outrageous forgiver and can forgive us of all of our sins. That he loves us, that he receives us through Jesus Christ. But with you there is forgiveness. That, look at the rest, of the, the rest of the text there in verse 4, that you may be feared. Now let's just talk about fearing the Lord for a moment because there's two types of fear in the Bible. You see this all throughout the Bible. There are two types of fear. There's what I call terror fear. That's the type of fear where you're afraid God's going to smite you like Sodom and Gomorrah and you quake in your boots and you're afraid that God's going to send you to hell and so you live in terror fear. That's one type of fear the Bible talks about. Every lost person should experience the terror fear of the Lord. But if you're a Christian, if you've been saved by grace, if you've been adopted into God's family, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should never experience a terror fear of God. You should never relate to God as a judge. You should never relate to God as a tyrant. You relate to God as a heavenly father. And so the second type of fear is not a terror fear. It's a worship fear. It's an awe. It's a healthy respect that you have for God where you serve Him and you love Him. You see, for some of us, it gets out of balance. If all you ever hear is that God is a God of wrath, God is a God of justice, God is a God that, that, that's angry at sin, that is absolutely true. But if that's where you stay... That's only half the gospel, and I can guarantee you, you'll end up hating God if that's all you hear. If you never hear the forgiveness side, that he poured out that wrath, that anger on Jesus in your place, that Jesus died to appease God's anger, that there is justice in the cross, 
you won't fear God in a healthy way. So my question is, have you confessed sin like this, like the psalmist has? I mean, have you come to that point where you say, God, if you, if you kept a record of every sin that I've ever committed, I'm toast. I own up to it. I admit it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to brush it under the carpet. I'm going to come clean. But with you, you're my only hope. There's forgiveness with you. Have I banked everything on the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus? So we've seen a cry of desperation. And we've seen a confession of sin. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see the third thing. A conviction to wait. A conviction to wait. Notice how many times the word wait shows up. It's repeated three times. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord as you go into verse 7. Waits repeated three times. Hopes repeated twice. Hoping and waiting are intrinsically linked in the Bible as you're hoping and you're waiting, here's the issue I think that happens sometimes. When you're overcome with guilt and you're overcome with shame and you're overcome with your sin and you are desperate, it's often very easy to get impatient with God. And you want God to act on your timetable and you make demands upon God as opposed to just quietly waiting upon God. To wait upon God. Even after you've confessed sin, even after God has given you assurance of your forgiveness, even after God has flooded your heart with the joy of the Lord and your salvation, you still may have to suffer the consequences of those sins. Things may not get better. You actually could experience more hardship. It doesn't just mean that every problem is going to go away now that you're forgiven. You still may have to deal with some of those consequences. But notice verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His Word. I hope. In His Word. Where is the psalmist's ultimate hope? In the Word of God. In His Word is where I hope. Now, I don't have time to do this this morning, but think of all the promises that God has given in the Bible, all the promises. And we could probably sit here for two hours and go through all the promises of God in the Bible that He's promised His children. Now, think about this. If for some reason God were to break one of those promises or God were to break all of those promises, our hearts would melt in despair and fear and we couldn't trust God. But what has God given us? He's given us His unchangeable character, and He's given us His unchangeable Word. And that's where the psalmist puts his hope. I put my trust in the Word of God. This Word will never let you down. It will be your confidence. He's waiting. How is He waiting? Like a watchman for the morning. Like a watchman for the morning. Back in those ancient times, they would have watchmen on the wall that would do like four watches in the night, and they would, they would wait for the morning dawn. It would kind of be like you're on, the, you're on the night shift, and you're just waiting for morning to come so you can get off work. That's why he's, wait, he's waiting. He's eagerly waiting for God to show up, for God to do something. He's waiting. He's putting all of his hope in the promises of the Lord. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. 
to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. To wait quietly. Now, we could probably talk about stories of unrequited love. Have you ever been had unrequited love? You know what I mean by unrequited love? You love somebody and they didn't love you back. You poured your heart out to somebody and they didn't love you back. It was unrequited. You know some of the greatest stories of unrequited love are found in the Peanuts cartoon? <laughs> Think about it for a moment. We've been looking at this comic strip for over 50 years and Peppermint Patty still loves Charlie Brown and they're never together. Charlie Brown still loves a little red-haired girl and they're never together. Sally loves Linus and they're never together because Linus loves his teacher, Miss Othmar, and Lucy loves Schroeder. So these little kids are never getting together. It's unrequited love. It's never a happy ending with the peanuts because they never get together. I'm being kind of facetious here. One of the best lines from the peanuts about unrequited love is this. Nothing takes the taste out of peanut butter quite like unrequited love. (laughs) Now, why do I bring up these stories about unrequited love? We do not have a God who doesn't love us back. You can never worry about, is God going to love you back? You're never going to have to worry, I'm pouring myself out to God, I'm giving myself to God, and you never have to worry about a stone wall of God turning his back on you and saying, nope, you don't deserve my love, you're not going to receive my love. He's a God that's going to love you when you wait upon him like the watchman for the morning. So we've seen a cry of desperation, a confession of sin, a conviction to wait. Let's look at the last one here. A confidence in, in, in redemption. A confidence in redemption. There's a transformation in the psalmist. How does this psalm start? I'm in the depths. I'm crying out to God. If he kept track of all my sins, I would be toast. But I'm trusting in his forgiveness. I'm going to wait patiently. It's all very personal. But then in verse 7, he turns and, and addresses the whole nation. He addresses his brothers and sisters. He addresses the entire congregation, the entire nation. He says, oh, Israel, corporately. You now hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He says, listen, I've experienced this joy of forgiveness, my guilt being taken away, my my depths being, being overcome by your love. Now I want you to experience it. And two things he says about God there in verse 7. For with the Lord there's chesed. Can you guys all say that with me without spitting on each other? Chesed. It's the steadfast love. We translate it steadfast love. It's chesed. It means this, the tenacious, loyal, powerful, covenant, unconditional love that God has for his people where he will never leave or never forsake you. We don't have any word in the English language for chesed. It's a strong word, the chesed of God. The powerful love. And that's what the psalmist says. For with the Lord, there is hesed. There's there's steadfast love. And notice what else he says. With him is plentiful redemption. Now, the psalmist could have very easily just said, with the Lord, there's redemption. But what does he put there? He puts a little adjective, plentiful, which means bountiful, which means overflowing, which means gracious. God is overflowing. God is abundant. God is plentiful with redemption. So you have to ask the question, well, what is redemption? It's a big theological word, redemption. Well, the Israelites would have known what redemption is because it takes them back to the Exodus. The Israelites were in Egyptian slavery under harsh taskmasters. And they're in slavery 
And what does God do? God comes to them and provides a, a, a way to get out of slavery through the, the spotless blood of the Passover lamb. And then God takes them through the Red Sea and God conquers their enemies and God leads them to the promised land. That's the picture of redemption. It's this whole idea of being taken out of slavery, taken out of bondage, taken out of bondage to guilt. If you are in bondage to guilt and shame and sin with the Lord, there's plentiful redemption. There's plentiful release. God will release you. And so you have to ask the question, how is it plentiful? Well, it costs God his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Do you want to know the greatest display of generosity and abundance and plentiful redemption, the greatest display ever? Just look at the cross where God gave his only begotten son. Verse 8 is the final affirmation of the psalmist's confidence in God's ability to redeem. Verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What I find interesting is at the very end of the psalm, he addresses sin. You know, in our health, wealth, and prosperity, gospel, culture, you know, you hear these television evangelists say, just give your life over to Jesus and everything will go great. You'll never struggle. You'll never have a miscarriage. You'll never have problems. You'll never have any of these issues. You will have all of your needs taken care of, and basically God will be a genie. So just give your life to Jesus so he can take care of all of your, your material needs. Let me just say something to you. If you never had another problem in your life, you never had financial issues, you never had spousal issues, you never had children issues, you never had any problems in your life. God took all of those away, but the one thing you still had was the guilt of your sin. It doesn't matter because you'd go straight to hell when you die. The greatest issue that we need to deal with is sin. And that's where the psalmist comes back to. Your testimonies, whoops, I lost my place here. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That word iniquities means to be perverse, to be bent, to be perverted, to be twisted. And I like the way the psalmist says that. Notice he doesn't say, the Lord will redeem you from some of your sin. If you try really hard. What does he say? The Lord will redeem you from all. Colossians 2.13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How does a holy God forgive sin? Does he just wink at it? Does he just brush it under the carpet as if it didn't happen? No. The wages of sin is death, so there has to be a death for sin. There has to be somebody pay the price for the guilt of sin. So God says, I'm not going to make you pay for it. I'm going to make my son pay for it. And so Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross, taking our guilt, taking our shame, so that we might be forgiven. He suffered for our sins as our substitute hanging on the cross. And I want you to think about something. Think about depths for a moment. How does the psalmist start out this psalm? I'm in the depths. I'm in the depths. Do you know who experienced the greatest depths there ever was to experience depths? It was Jesus Christ. When he's hanging on that cross, he's experiencing the depths of sin. 
He's experiencing the depths of alienation. He's experiencing the depths of being forsaken by his father. He's experiencing the depths of not his own sin because he was perfect. He's experiencing the depths of our sin on that cross. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there was anybody that was overwhelmed with sin, it was Jesus. But it wasn't his, it was ours. And God sent him to die for us, to take us out of our depths. So whenever you experience deep feelings of guilt, hope in God's abundant forgiveness. And there's nobody here this morning that is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. There's nobody here this morning that sinned so great that God can't look down and say, oh, you've sinned so much, I I can't forgive you. There's not one person here that sinned themselves out of a relationship with God. If you repent and you believe and you own up and you come to that point of desperation where you cry out to Jesus and say, but with you there's forgiveness. Because you see, there's going to be a final day. On that day you will stand before God. What does the psalmist say? If you kept a record of every one of my sins, who could stand? The answer is nobody could stand. But with Christ and His goodness and His righteousness and His love and His mercy, you can stand before God on that final day. Not because you were good enough, not because you earned it, not because you went to church every Sunday. You can stand before God because Christ died in your place and He gave you His righteousness and He accepted you because of your belief in him so is your soul waiting patiently on the lord are you trusting in his plentiful forgiveness and there may be some of you that are seriously dealing with guilt this morning i can't look into your hearts but i want this to be a message of hope i don't want you to go away feeling guilty i don't want you going away feeling despair i want you going away with gospel assurance the assurance that through the gospel of jesus christ there's plentiful redemption And God can forgive all your iniquities. So would you cry out to him in your depths? And would you say like the psalmist, but with you there is forgiveness. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And there may be some of you that are just really struggling with guilt. And maybe you don't even know why. Would you hear the message of the gospel this morning and let it shower over you? Would you receive the love of Christ in the gospel this morning? And would you leave assured that God can forgive you through Jesus Christ? Would you spend just a few moments in silent prayer this morning going directly to Jesus and and just maybe internalizing or, or saying the same words that this psalmist said to God? Whatever depths you're in this morning, would you go to the Lord Would you cry out to him and would you receive his forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ? Would you spend some time in prayer?
Father, we want to take seriously the passage of Scripture in verse 3 that says, if you were to mark iniquity, if you were to mark our sins, if you were to write down every record of sin that we've ever committed, who could stand? Not one of us here could. But with you, there's forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross on our behalf to experience the depths of our shame, to experience the depths of our sin, to experience the depths of our guilt. Jesus, you didn't have to do it. Nobody forced you to do it. You did it because you loved us. You did it because it was a free gift of grace. And you call us to receive it to accept it, to to come to you in faith. And Lord, I really do pray for those in the congregation this morning that just whoever's here today, Lord, that this message would hit home to their hearts, that this psalm would minister to their souls. And they would come away renewed today in gospel assurance that with you there is abundant forgiveness. And Lord, maybe they need to talk to somebody about it and that's okay, but Lord, hopefully they go directly to you. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your plentiful, your abundant forgiveness. It's only found in in the cross of Christ. If we ever doubt your love, Jesus, help us just to look at the cross. There you proved it once and for all. We love you. We honor you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.